Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 79. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. The audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them. But I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work. If I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm so thrilled to have on my show today Betsy Atkins. She's an American business executive, a serial entrepreneur. She's a former chairman and chief executive officer of Clear Standards, a leading provider of SaaS software enterprise, carbon management, and sustainability solutions. She is a three-time CEO. And what I'm most impressed about, I'm interested to talk to her about, is that she's been on 27 public boards, and um, I'm not all that familiar what is required to be on a board. I've always, I hear about them a lot, so I'm excited to talk to her about it. Betsy, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to join you. Well, I thank you so much for your flexibility. I know we've rescheduled this a, a handful of times, but uh, reading your book, uh, you're the author of a brand new book, uh, Behind Boardroom Doors, Lessons of a Corporate Director. I'm, you know, it's a fascinating read, especially because I, myself, is not, I'm not that familiar with uh, what's involved with being on a board. I know a handful of folks that are, so why don't you educate us a little bit about what is involved on being on a board? A public corporate board is responsible for looking out for the welfare of the shareholders, the people who buy one share, a thousand shares, the institutional shareholders like Vanguard and Fidelity who buy millions of shares. And the role of the board is to review with management and approve the annual plan for the business, the annual operating plan, and approve the budget. Uh, The board approves acquisitions or divestitures. And the board is supposed to be looking out for any risks to the corporation for the long term. So, for example, you can remember Blockbuster Video, and that board did not think Netflix was going to be a threat, just like Borders Bookstore dismissed Kindle from Amazon as a threat. So you're supposed to anticipate things that would hurt the long time, long-term health of the enterprise and to review the financials so that whatever is reported to Wall Street, there's been an audit committee that looked at the financial reports and on behalf of the shareholders is approving that these reports are accurate and reliable. And you typically have a compensation committee that looks at bonuses and pay. So the board oversees the operating of the company. I guess, you know, you know, obviously this podcast is about leadership and the dynamics involved. And in the pre-recording, I said to you, sometimes it must 
you know, the challenges of uh, dealing with that level, probably a lot of egos that you had to deal with at times, a lot of crises, a lot of challenges that are, are very difficult to describe to the normal folk like myself. What, what are the biggest challenges of being on a board? Well, normally the biggest challenge is just anticipating uh, what the competitive landscape and dynamics are going to be. So the example of, you know, books and books, not really understanding and anticipating that electronic readers like Kindle was going to destroy their business. And, you know, it's easy to be complacent because your business is growing and doing well and not really um, push yourself to think around the corner what would be the risk that could impact this business because companies have a lifetime just like humans have a normal life expectancy the same is true for corporations and so uh, about 40 percent almost half of all businesses statistically will no longer exist in 20 years right and 60 percent will be gone in 40 so you better figure out where you are in the life cycle of the company and anticipate what is going to happen to make the company less relevant. Well, how do you avoid – yeah, that's a great great point. I mean, how do you avoid being a part of maybe a, a dying brand or a dinosaur or, or, or how do you know that you're in the right, right spot? What are the, same, the things you look for? You know, I think annually boards, after the big debacles of Enron and WorldCom, boards started doing really deep – once a year strategy offsite meetings where it would be a two, three day meeting and the, the management team would present what do they think the business is going to look like in three years and five years and really forcing that discipline to say, you know, well, who are the competitive threats and what would be different about our business? For example, you know, five years ago, people wouldn't have said mobile is going to truly change the world. And now the use of mobile devices has far outpassed that of PCs. So if you haven't mobile-enabled your business, whether you're you know, doing a business that touches the consumer like the travel or hospitality or financial services or healthcare, you know, even in other businesses where you're doing manufacturing, mobile is going to affect every part of the business. So what is the next giant trend? Not the next direct competitor, but what are the technology trends that are going to really change how business operates. And I think if you really challenge management and yourself to think about that, then you'll identify where uh, the things that you need to be understanding and embracing so you don't start to flatline because it's hard to pull out of a flatline. Well, it's interesting you bring up the you know the, the mobile piece, Zabi, with respect to leveraging and adapting to the, the mobile trends. Why do you think... As you talk about in your book, why do you think Border missed the boat so, so as we look back at it now, blatantly almost? You know, I think what happened was uh, the oversight of boards uh, became um, a checklist. Let's have a financial expert for the audit committee. Uh, let's have somebody in our industry. And so you built a board based on a checklist. And what everybody forgot was technology runs through all businesses. Let's say you manufacture and you don't think you need technology. Well, you do for your supply chain, for your bill of materials, and how do you do just-in-time sourcing. Uh, So you need technology no matter what your industry is. And most boards today don't have any what I call digital DNA. 
So if you didn't have digital DNA at borders and you only had people from the retail sector, or maybe even had people from the literature and, and uh, book sector, you would think you would know everything because you aren't looking at major tectonic shifts right. in the big plates of how technology is going to drive business. And so I think that's missing, and I think that's critical in the future because the only way you stay competitive is to embed technology and make it really easy for people to do business with you using technology. Well, gosh, and that's why I brought up Borders because it seems like, you know, and I loved Borders. I loved going to the bookstores. I loved the experience, and maybe they were just kind of because everybody – there thought everybody would would love that uh, experience and that would override the kind of maybe what they consider the Amazon phase. Um, I don't know. It's, I mean, I guess it's I easy. Think it's like, you know what I think it's like? Um, it, if, you have, if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, right. he jumps out. If you put him in a pot of water and turn the flame up, he just cooks slowly and never jumps out. So if you're in a business like Borders in your management, you know, you just slowly see your market share diminishing a little bit at a time. Right. And so you figure, well, I'll be more efficient. I'll get my mix of, of books better. Uh, I'll add a coffee shop so people spend time and browse longer. You know, you don't look outside. You try to be incrementally better. And that's why companies die, in my opinion, because they are not really trying to imagine what is the business environment like in five years. And you're looking at your direct competitors, not someone who disintermediates you from underneath. And that's what always happens. Mm. And, and and that's what you have to be looking at. You have to really try and look at that and force yourself to do things that aren't comfortable. So how did you get started on boards? I mean, you, we, you said you're a serial entrepreneur, and obviously you come from the technology side, so that, that lends to me your passion. So how did, you, how did it start for you? You started with uh, your own business, and how did you migrate into boards? Well, I began my career in technology and serving on technology boards. And so probably half of the boards I've served on have been tech companies. But, you know, it's easy to be uh, inward-looking and, and, and not look at the big market. The big market, the biggest market, are the major sectors of American economy, health care, manufacturing, consumer packaged goods, pharmaceuticals, and financial services. So I deliberately focused on joining boards in the big sectors who do business with companies so I could learn what those industries value and how they think about business so that hopefully my perspective from tech would be useful to them and complementary and I would be learning something new and different about their industry. So it was a a deliberate uh, interest of mine to move into other industry boards rather than just stay on tech sector boards, which I still do about half of my board work in the tech sector. So do you go seek these yourself? You say, oh, I want to be on this board, or do do you find people are um, requesting your services? Which way is it more leaning towards? You know, I've been very fortunate that um, because I've been a a CEO and, and and a 
a very lucky entrepreneur because you can't think you're smart, right? They're right. just believing your own PR. I've been lucky. I've been with great teams, and we did something, you know, that, that uh, built the infrastructure of the Internet right when it took off in the 90s, so you rise with this big tsunami of growth. You can't think you're a genius. You work hard, but, you know. Right. So I was fortunate to get the exposure, and then um, because I do a lot of uh, corporate governance work, teaching what are the best practices. It's, it's always been an interest of mine, how you make the board a real asset, a competitive asset. Um, I think it, it it ended up that I got visibility, and so I was, I've been very lucky that, that I've been approached. Well, obviously one of the parts of the boards, and, and being on 27 boards, you've had to probably deal with um, the evaluation, the, the hiring, and the letting go of CEOs. Tell me a little bit about what, you personally look for in a great CEO, especially the leadership qualities? You know, you look at both qualitative and quantitative. So the quantitative are, you know, what you can see in the resume of what the person has accomplished. They've grown a business, uh, they've built a team, they've entered new markets, they've made good acquisitions. So that's stuff you can see. It's the qualitative leadership qualities that you need to spend the time figuring out. And for each company, it's not the same leadership. Some companies have a culture where they like and they respond to a command and control leadership style. Mm. And other companies have a very collaborative uh, leadership style where everybody has to buy in and they build consensus. So you have to understand the culture of the company, where it is, and what kind of leader is the right leader. And uh, if it's changing, for example, maybe a company had been command and control and now really there's a desire and a belief that we want to change to be a more consensus-style leadership. So you have, to, uh, you have to look at those cultural fits and then map it into leadership attributes. What's your th- what's your thought on that, especially if it's, uh, when you're dealing with CEOs? They all tend to fit a certain um, dynamic personality, and the perception is – you have to have a larger-than-life figure and ego. I personally uh, kind of lean towards what uh, Jim Collins says, the level five type style of leadership. Those are the type of CEOs I like. But you've, ha- you've got a lot of experience. I'm curious on your insight of what you think, um, um, how ego plays in, in, in this part. I mean, do you need the charismatic figure? You don't necessarily need the charismatic figure. You need somebody who can articulate a vision and get buy-in and build a strong team because no one person can get something done. Uh, You need a full organization and you need the buy-in and you need to listen actively to get some value from your leadership team to come up with the best plan so you really process as a team. So um, I think that... You know, having charisma is, is a positive, but not necessarily the most important attribute. Right. What do you think, uh, as the organ, especially when you're dealing with large organizations, as they get larger, there's a tendency for the institution to dampen inspiration or creativity. How did you tackle that on the boards? How do you how do you keep that from happening? Um, you know, I think. The thing that happens when you get large is you get bureaucratic and you get slow. And people get demotivated because what you're missing in an organization that's big normally is that you own something, you're accountable for it, 
you're empowered to actually go and build it or execute the project. So there's nothing more infuriating uh, when people are, are, you know, mired in, you know, highly matrixed organizations and you, you don't own doing something because you have to go to 18 people to get buy-in and get resource and so you can never get it done because you spend so much time on the internal coordination that you can't spend time doing the task, getting the goal done. So I think uh, inspiration or motivation um, is hurt when companies don't break things into smaller groups and give someone ownership, empowerment, and then they, they have to be accountable. Yeah, I love what you just said. Ownership and accountability is key, in my opinion. I agree with you. I, I love that. How do you how do you tackle the bureaucracy? I've worked in some organizations that are fairly large, and just what you talked about, the heavily matrixed, you got to get a lot of buy-in, and people just like, oh, my gosh, I can't ever get anything done. What's your best advice for someone who's maybe stuck in that middle management or maybe even a, a high-level manager or leader? How do they break through that bureaucracy? You know, I think that it is very hard to change that culturally and um, personally. When I was a middle manager in those things, I left because it was just too frustrating. It felt like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. It was right. incredibly annoying. So the best way if you're a middle manager in one of those companies is go to a remote region because you get to own things. So if you're the territory, if you're the general manager of Singapore, you're so far away that pretty much they let you run your own organization. You know, I would try and run a country that was a small territory because you get all of the thrill of building it cultivating it, growing it, and and it's so satisfying to make an impact. And plus, in today's global world, it's a great way to grow is to understand how business is done in a different area and how to take the messages from headquarters and tailor them for those local audiences. So that would be what I would try to do. I love that advice. That's great. That's awesome. I love that advice. Yeah, go, you know, Go pick a, uh, that, that austere environment where no one wants to go, and yeah, and you can be kind of a, a big fish in a small pond and make things happen. Oh, I love that. What do you think, um, especially what you've seen, is, is, is what do you think the, the biggest challenge – well, let me, let, me, let me back up. What do you think the biggest mistake that you've witnessed leaders making more frequently than others? You've seen a lot of boards and a lot of CEOs. What is the biggest mistake that you've seen them make? It's um, being incremental. Let's just do a little more, a little better. And, you know, you're not modifying and really changing your business model. No business model stays the same. Right. And so what worked in the past isn't necessarily what's going to work in the future. And so this incrementalism of I'll just be a little more nimble, I'll be a little bit quicker with my products, I'll be a little bit more energy on capturing leads and converting them, whatever it is, just, you know, doing my business better, uh, that's the mistake because the business model is always changing. And so slowly you hold this melting ice cream cone. So you have to be proactively thinking, how is the customer going to want to do business with me in the future? Who else is going to really want to enter this market? Um, so incrementalism um, 
is is I think the the slow death now uh, of of a business uh, and leadership, where you're not really uh, trying to hone your business model, you know, purposefully to to keep iterating on it in more than a very tiny incremental. Let's just do it a little bit faster, cheaper. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that the the the, the solution to that is to be more um, bold and courageous in your vision is that what is that what you're getting at and yes and for big companies you can't abandon your base you right. know you're a giant company but you can set yourself up to be more innovative by uh doing more testing and failing fast and setting up an organization that will be the front end or saying you know what we're just too big to innovate so we're going to innovate by acquisition and if you're going to innovate by acquisition, which is what typically happens, then set up an environment for acquisition to succeed because, you know, it's a horrible statistic. Seventy-six percent of all acquisitions made by corporate America, they fail. I mean, what a waste of shareholders' money. Right. So statistically, you're not doing post-merger integration and getting the value. You know, you do this business plan that the board approves we're going to buy ABC and they're going to drive our revenue by 10%. Nobody ever goes back and checks, did it really drive the revenue by 10%? And nine months later, you lost all the good people of company ABC. So, you know, look yourself in the mirror and say, can I innovate or not? And if I can't innovate and I'm going to acquire, then how do I not roll over and kill my baby acquisition? Hmm. I'm interested about, personally, have, can you name a person who's had a tremendous impact on you as a leader, maybe a mentor, and, and how did this uh, person impact your life? You know, I, I learned an awful lot from a guy named General Jack Chain. Do you happen to know him? No. General, how do you spell the last name? I'm sorry. C-H-A-I-N. Chain. Jack Chain. He's a retired uh, four-star general and from the Air Force, and uh, I met Jack Chain, he was our um, non-executive chairman of the board at Reynolds Tobacco, where I was a board member. They needed a non-smoking board member by law, can you believe it, (laughs) (laughs) to check that they weren't, you know, falsifying, I guess, their tar and nicotine levels or something. And, you know, Reynolds is owned 43% by British American Tobacco, and they have uh, on the British Stock Exchange the FTSE 100, and you have to have a corporate social responsibility score, so you needed a non-smoker. It's kind of funny. Anyhow, Jack Chain was, I learned an awful lot from, because he was very direct and forthright in giving negative feedback Mm. in a constructive way. And everybody shrinks from that. It's an uncomfortable thing to say to somebody, you know, uh, you need to change this, uh, you need to do this better to succeed. You know, here are issues we need you to address. The ability to be forthright is hugely valuable, and and people really don't give uh, constructive feedback. They they want to just praise everybody, and they you know will kind of generally you know give you a performance review and say oh it was, you know. You, you were satisfactory. You met, you know, the requirements. And I think um, that is a great attribute uh, because you strengthen 
the organization, you strengthen your CEO as a leader. And I'm not saying, you know, you want to be constantly critical because that doesn't help either. People shut down and they don't hear it. But, But being direct enough to tell somebody where they can do better and, and it, without it blurred is very helpful. Yeah, I kind of equate it to, I mean, it's a great point. It's a difficult challenge, obviously, for all of us as leaders to to give the honest feedback and, and constructive feedback. I kind of equate it to, you know, I certainly would want my best friend or my spouse to tell me if I had something in my teeth or if I had bad breath, right? And that's kind of how I looked at if I had to give criticism or if I was getting criticism, you know, at least this person loves me enough to tell me I have bad breath, right? And so that that's how you got to look at it. You're doing it out of a – it may sound harsh and it may be painful to, to, to uncomfortable go through, but it, it comes out of a place of love actually because you're wanting the person to improve. It does. It does. And, and I think you then have to, you know, as um, a chairman and a lead director – on some of my boards, when I do, you know, our annual review of our CEO, you can't just do it once either. You need to take the time and invest the time in the person to mentor them and have, you know, a a second review kind of six months into it and say, well, you know, if these are areas where you could grow and be stronger and would help you to be a a more well-rounded leader, um, you know, you, you need to not just leave it there. You need to say, well, so what are the plans, what are the actions one could do to help you strengthen yourself in these three areas, hypothetically? And then do a mid-year check and say, are we on, on course? Have you made time to go and, you know, learn more about A and B? You know, if you need to be a more charismatic leader or a more empathetic leader or a better listener or uh, more comfortable with the financial statements, whatever it might be, you know, you need to go back and check. As we get closer to the end here, one thing I'm really curious about, I haven't talked to a lot of guests about this, but it's a topic that I'm very passionate about, and it's the idea of crisis management. And uh, obviously going through your book, you've dealt with a lot of crises. Boards, I mean, it seems like that's a huge part of their function is how do they effectively deal with a crisis. One thing that I appreciated from uh, my time in the Marine Corps and is that we were pretty good about if um, – and a tragedy happened, an aircraft accident or something like that happened, it was pretty well spelled out what you what you did. And um, I noticed in the corporate arena, sometimes that's lacking. Now, not that you wouldn't know how to handle with the immediate emergency of dealing with the injured person or, or, or something that happened in the plant, but I'm talking about the external factors and looking outwards in the press and everybody else. Tell me a little bit about what you believe and some of the experiences you've you've had with dealing with crises on a board. Well, I think... The first thing you need to do is admit and and all engage that it is a crisis and it requires immediate attention. And you have to set up a, a, a rhythm, a cadence, a, a very regular rhythm. You know, at House South, where I was uh, chairman when the FBI showed up, I had just joined the board, and the FBI showed up with eight teams, and the Department of Justice brought criminal fraud, and the company's trading was suspended off of the New York Stock Exchange, and the company started to spiral into insolvency. And, you know, oh my God, you have a million patients, 55,000 employees. Wow. 
you know, 300 hospitals. You know, this is not something where you can, oh, well, let's meet next week. So, you know, you have to figure out how intense the crisis is. In this case, it was very intense. So we met every single day, and we made one decision a day. Because you can't get global and galactic, and then you're paralyzed. You have to figure out what is the immediate, most important thing you have to address, address it, make a decision. Address it, make a decision, and you have to go and get objective, outside, best-in-class experts. So, for example, at HealthSouth, the allegation was the company was cooking their books. So you have to go get an outside accounting firm to do a forensic analysis. Well, if you're going to do your job, you've got to go and call the top four big accounting firms. You've got to interview the head of their forensic practice, figure out who's dealt with something similar, who's got time, and who you think would do the job. You can't abdicate it. You know, there's no magic bullet. You just have to do the work. You've got to put 16 hours in and do the darn work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to be very honest. That, you know, the instinct is something bad's happened, let me hide it. I don't really want to tell the world it's, you know, we'll, we'll hurt our brand, we'll embarrass the company, it will drive down our value if people know the extent of the issue. It's really not so. If you are honest and forthright, and you know, it's fine to say, I don't know the answer yet, but we're working on it, and this is our process, and we're going to get through it, and we're going to keep you informed. At least people feel like, you know, there's an approach as opposed to my head is under the rock, and I'm hoping it won't affect the rest of me that's sticking out in the air. Right. So uh, I think being very honest about the severity, making a decision regularly, quickly, with a good rhythm of solving the problem, whether it's daily meeting, every three days, and, you know, picking out what is the biggest priority and, and working through them one at a time and being forthright is the best way. Yeah, I love what you said about the, the compartmentalization piece or the triage piece. You didn't say those words, but, but uh, I think you said you make sure you don't want to go galactic and, and it can see so overwhelming. The natural tendency is just stick your head in the sand and hope it goes away. But I think if, you know, finding the most critical, you know, bleeding artery and, and, and cover that and make a decision and go to the next one, right? And, um, exactly. And staying calm. I think, you know, the compartmentalization piece is, cre- is key. You know, the appearance of calm, even though you may be pretty mushed up inside, you got to be calm. And somebody does, and, and that permeates. And so I can imagine sitting through some of these that uh, you had to dig deep on a few occasions, I'm sure. Well, actually, you find out how good your board is, is when something goes wrong. And by the way, every company, every organization, you know, has something go wrong at some time. Right. And so you end up in the foxhole with your colleagues, and then you really find out what they're made of That's and right. how they do. And you're being calm and, and having somebody on your board who's been through these kinds of crises makes a big difference. It's kind of scary, I am sure, when you're on a board uh, where, you know, people have not been through lots of board issues and crises, and then what happens is you tend to abdicate the decision process. You freeze, and you abdicate the decision process to your outside advisors, to your lawyers, to your accountants. And, you know, frankly, the shareholders have put you there to act as an owner on their behalf. Right. 
And you have to make your business judgment. You you have to make that practical thing that you spoke about early, Richard, the common sense decision. Act like you own this business, that your entire life savings is in it, and you're making a decision, what's the best thing for the health of the business long term? Gosh, it sounds pretty. What, what's the most uh, kind of uh, bizarre thing you've had to deal with on a board, or the most funny, or the most uh, kind of kind of weird that would surprise us? You do get some crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> you really do. Um, the most bizarre thing I dealt with on a board was uh, there was a technology company, and uh, we hired. Um, a vice president of sales for Central America and the Caribbean, and nobody did a background check, and the person was a felon, a convicted felon. And the felon hired two other felon friends. (laughs) So they went to Haiti, and they were going to sell this telecommunication equipment, uh, and their partner that they were selling to in Haiti was Aristide's brother-in-law. Oh, my goodness. And they cooked up this idea that they would mark up the price instead of being $50,000, it would be... Three hundred thousand, and they would just keep and split the money. And we had a whistleblower, and so we went and investigated, and was like, "Oh my God, this is really happening!" And there's this big bag of cash about to be transacted in Haiti, so we intercepted it, and we were all very angry, and we brought in the vice president for the Caribbean, who was this felon, and you know we were all righteous, that we were ready to fire him, and the guy said, you're not going to fire me. You're going to pay me a million dollars to be quiet, because Enron and WorldCom have just happened, and I am going to destroy your market cap. I am going to tell all the newspapers that you have no internal controls, you're poorly run, there's no good oversight, and I will take your company's value down by 70% if you don't pay me a million dollars. Oh, my God. Yeah, so here you are, and, you know, if you're just, you know, doing the right thing in this narrow, defined behavior, you want to fire this guy, and you want to turn him into the authorities. But if you're a steward to the shareholders, right, because all these people are trusting that you're looking out for their benefit, you know, are you doing the right thing to the shareholders if you destroy 70% of the value of the stock? You're really not. So you're stuck in this quandary of what is the right business decision. And you have to you have to understand you're making a business judgment. You're not the behavior police, even though the behavior is reprehensible. You can't give yourself uh, carte blanche just to decide on one element. You have to be looking out. You know, you're representing a variety of constituencies, the shareholders, the employees, the customers, and your first loyalty, duty of loyalty, is to the shareholders. That's who you work for. So you have to make a, a really tough business decision and business judgment. So what happened to him? Well, we ended up negotiating a modest severance. We held our noses. Uh, we paid them $80,000 severance to go away. And uh, we negotiated the severance when we really just wanted to fire them for, you know, embezzlement uh, and fraud and foreign corrupt illegal practices violations. But, you know, that wasn't the luxury. That wasn't the right thing to do for the shareholders. So we had to hold our nose 
and come up with a decision. That's amazing. Amazing. As, you know, the complexity of the decisions and everything else, to, uh, that's the challenges of being on a high-level board. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Isn't it incredible? You cannot make these yeah, things Yeah, it's like up. you do. It sounds like a, a TV show script or something almost. And it's, it's one of many. But uh, mostly it's all about growing great businesses with fabulous teams. But everybody kind of trips along the way every now and then. And, and you know, that's your job. Right. Well, guys, where can people find your book, Behind Boardroom Doors? Where can they, they get a hold of it? Uh, on Amazon. Behind Boardroom Doors, uh, right on Amazon by, by me. Well, it's a great read. I mean, there's a lot of insight there, especially if you're – um, it's not necessarily a leadership book, but there are a lot of leadership lessons to be learned in that book. And uh, and uh, I sure do appreciate the time you coming on the show. It was so much fun talking to you. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you for your time. All right, Betsy. Have a good day. I will. You too. Bye-bye now. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.